Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by David Moser. How are you, David? Very good. It's a lovely day. Lovely day. What are we doing indoors? First day of spring. I mean, at least I'm looking. I'm staring out at a beautiful blue sky today. It's, it's a true what we call a Seneca blue. We call BBLT. It. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, we are incredibly happy to have with us today none other than Michael Meyer, who is the author most recently of In Manchuria, a village called Wasteland and the Transformation of Rural China. Uh, Meyer was a, we call him Meyer, what is, everyone calls you Meyer. Everybody calls me Meyer, yeah. yeah Meyer. Meyer. Uh, Meyer uh, also wrote uh, The Last Days of Old Beijing, which you may have read, an excellent book about his uh, uh, living in the, the area south of Tianmen for, uh, uh, in a place with no toilet. Having to you know do his daily ablutions, they're um, making him nostalgic. I am, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, so he, he, having not suffered enough there, he decided to <laughs> to inflict the pain of two years or more in 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 Manchuria, in a, a, a little village um, that is the native village of his wife Frances, the lovely Frances. Um, that village was called Huangdi, but uh, the, the title of the uh, what you call it in, in well, first of all. Thanks for coming on the show, man. <laughs> it's great to be here. It's great to be back in Beijing. Beijing always does the rope dope After I've been away, I come back and it's like, oh, look how beautiful this city is. Look right. at this beautiful blue sky. It's like running into an X and you go, I remember why we used to go out. And then you start slowly realizing why you broke up. But right. anyway, it's good to be here right now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it is good to be here. Uh, you, you did an appearance at the Bookworm Literary I'm doing, Festival? I'm here you, for the Beijing Bookworm Literary Festival. So oh, great. this afternoon I'm doing a session on travel writing in China. And tomorrow I have a book talk um, and a panel with David actually in the afternoon. So Alas, it's nice to be in town. You will have missed it if you're listening to this. Mm. Uh, but uh, hopefully you'll have caught Meyer uh, in, in his talk. He's a guy I've known for an awfully long time since like 1999. He's one of that first group of, of Peace Corps volunteers who was in southwestern China. Before we get into your book, mm-hmm. there's a story of yours that I've been retelling to great <laughs> applause uh, about your, I think it was like the first week in China, uh, back in Chengdu, uh, when you took a, a bus trip up to Omeishan. I wonder if I'm getting the details of it right. It involves like an encounter with inebriated E guys who like smash windows on buses and one of them gets it his head It involved kicked. an attempted murder. Right. Yeah. I mean, you talk about a cold awakening to China. My first, When I was in training as one of the first Peace Corps volunteers in 1995, we were told, um, go out, you know, go take a train or go take a bus in the countryside. Go see something. Try to use your brand new Chinese, of which I had about five characters at that point. And I got on a train to Ebin, one of those old steam engine trains, and I um, didn't realize that by the time I got to Ebi and I couldn't get back the same night, I thought I'd get off at the train and just turn around and go back to Chengdu. But I had to stay overnight in Ebi and the next morning I got on a bus and it started cutting diagonally across the countryside because there had been flooding and the road was washed out and we ended up going through fields and we were going to Ameishan and what was going to be a, you know, a four-hour ride was in about hour eight when the bus slowed down. And I remember thinking distinctly, don't pick these guys up. Don't pick these guys up. Uh, The bus slowed down and picked up three gentlemen um, who had open bottles of liquor and large knives on their belts. Uh, And when they got on the bus, and it took them about maybe three minutes to sort of their eyes to focus and see me, you know, which was obviously I was the only foreigner on the bus, if not the only foreigner that had been in that region for, for many, many years. And they got very excited um, and became quite aggressive. And somebody on the bus said something to the effect of one of them of, you know, leave the guy alone. And one of the gentlemen took his liquor bottle and smashed it over the head of the guy who had said, leave the foreigner alone. And then it was like in an Old West movie, like all hell broke loose. And <laughs> The guy tries gl- to strangle you for some yeah, reason. Yeah, glass was <laughs> smashing everywhere. Blood was splattering on me. I'm laughing now. But um, a guy decides, yeah, the, the solution is to strangle the foreigner. And so he had his... <laughs> His hands around my neck, and um, there was a plexiglass divider between me and the driver. And the driver, during all this, everybody had like gone to the back of the bus. It was like water rushing down a drain. You know, like all passengers leaped over the seats and got to the back. And the driver had actually unscrewed. If you've seen old Volkswagen buses, you could do this. The but gear shift bus, bar, yeah, He could right. unscrew the gear shift, right? And he he put his foot on that plexiglass divider between me and him, and the plexiglass came down on me, and he swung that gear shift on top of the guy's head who had his hands on my neck, and that guy wow. let go of that grip rather quickly. Because um, he was to the floor. dead. He was dead, yeah. And then <laughs> we ended up in a little village. Isn't this the best story you've ever We ended up in a heard? village, and I remember but they dragged that guy off the bus, and it was one of those old, you know, long buses with the steps. So I remember was, them dragging the guy off the bus by his heels and going, good dunk, good dunk, good dunk, down to the dirt. And I ended up spending the afternoon 
and well into that evening in a police station being interrogated for what had happened. And I spoke, you know, I had five words of Chinese, what's your around? And um, <laughs> I did not have my passport. I didn't have a cell phone. Um, and that, well, yeah, that was my yeah. sort of introduction to, to China. And the resolution was, I remember they brought, <laughs> they brought in a translator, yeah. um, some middle school teacher who had bedhead and had been bumping along the countryside in his Land Cruiser to be rushed to the scene. And he was so excited to meet a foreigner and use his Chinese. Um, and he kept offering me watermelon and everything else. And meanwhile, the police are trying to get me to put my thumbprint on my statement, you know, on the onion skin paper that they had written. Um, and the resolution of all this was they led me out to the courtyard of the police station where the two other gentlemen were seated on the ground and their hands were tied behind them on a, on a pole. And the cop said, we will beat them until you are satisfied justice has been achieved. <laughs> and that was the translation. They, they didn't the offer you the opportunity. No, it wasn't. And I remember <laughs> immediately saying, justice has been achieved. Justice has been achieved, you know, um, with Making one, sure the translator one was getting kick. The yeah. And. Got back on the bus. All the windows had been shattered. The bus passengers were still waiting there. Um, you know, they started singing Everybody's trying to like lighten the mood. And uh, we got into Ame, you know, after midnight. And uh, the bus, like, wouldn't let me go. Like, made sure, you know, took me around, checked me into a hotel, uh, made a fish restaurant, open their garage door, door, you know, and... Um, and I remember the woman took the fish, you know, out of the tank and slammed it on the cement floor. And it was that same sound they had heard earlier in the day. And, uh, <laughs> and then I'm not joking. No one believes this part you of the story. You never go to I'm, wet markets I'm, anymore. Huh? It is. And really at the end of it, you know, the case of beer comes out and everybody wanted to play bong, 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 you know, bong, 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 and gee, bong, 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 cool. And it was again, the stick <laughs> yeah. beating. And I was like, you, it, I thought this is writing itself, but no one will believe this. Right. Um, yeah, so after, well, now after years of therapy, I'm really happy to talk about it. But. <laughs> I, I have definitely embellished that story in the retelling a couple of times. I mean, in, in, in my telling, while you're being interrogated, yeah. you're hearing these, like, moans of that's agony true. from the country. Okay, so that's, that's okay. True, I did yeah. remember that. You, in, in, well, in, see, after this, the squat toilets are really not so bad. Right. See, that's so, but the secret. The, the whole point of me asking you to, yes, to tell this you. marvelous tale is that I wanted to give listeners a sort of a, a sampling of, of – your, your narrative capabilities and, and how many they, they come through in the books that you've written and, and um, you're, you're a terrific raconteur and it's a lot of fun to read. Uh, you, you know, this is this is this is just a, a terrific book. I've only gotten I can confess about six chapters. It's been one of those weeks. Six chapters in. Oh, I think it just David, gets better after that. Yeah, so you've I, read the I, bad part. It gets better and better. Oh, as good, it goes. good, 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 yeah. good. Yeah, once your wife gets out of the way. Exactly. Then... <laughs> once I can focus on the rice, that's all anybody cares about. What about the rice? Yeah. So no, that's all I cared about. I mean, you, you, immediately you had me turned off. You, you were saying, you know, well, rice to me is just rice. But there's a so Huangdi yes. waste. Oh, let's ask about that first. Now, why did you decide to go with the with wasteland as a translation? I mean, we. Don't don't call so if we're writing a book on Spain. We don't refer to the city of Matamoros as "kill the Moors." Sure, time, right, right. <laughs> no, it's a good point. And why call the book Manchuria as opposed to the that? Piece? Makes a little more sense. No, that right. makes sense. It's, it's that historically, makes sense that's it. Well, there's been. It's funny. Chinese journalists all like the title in Manchuria. Western journalists I've found have asked me, um, you know, are you trying to make a political statement? Are you saying Manchuria is like Tibet or Xinjiang? I think, no, it's just a really beautiful word that existed long before Manchukuo, the Japanese puppet state, and actually long after Liu Shaqi and Zhou Enlai use Manchuria um, in their correspondence as well. Uh, wasteland, because, you know, when you're writing for a Western audience, you need to give them talismans to hang on to and follow throughout the book. Okay. And I found, you know, with the Beijing book, if, if listeners have read that, you'll notice that in that book, I, I have characters have a, they've had a noun appended to the front of their name. So it's Recycler Wong. Right. It's, it's old The, the Homeric epithet. It's the right. widow, exactly. Right. Because you can only keep so many characters um, in your mind at one time who's on stage. And so with Wasteland, too, I found, you know, the, the villages around there are Mudtown and Lonely Outpost and the Dunes and Jung Smelly Ditch. They have these very evocative names. And they're all of <laughs> Jung a pattern. I love that, right? Yeah. And they, 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 they're all of a pattern, actually. And so the Wasteland thing was that um, – you know, one of the points I make in the book is that no one really knows the history of the village there. There's only a little rock, a little slab that says in 1956 it became a village. But when you go back further and further and you see that this was a village during the reign of Kangxi, that these other villages around here were all given these names basically to keep other settlers from coming or to get, you know, or to get... Sort of like Iceland and... It was Iceland-Greenland reversal thing, exactly. Or to get, um, you know, bandits from passing by and stuff. And so that word wasteland is sort of symbolic. But you're right. I could have just called it Huangdi throughout the book. I mean, in, in fact... I don't say northern capital for Beijing, for right, example. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, in fact, it's not a wasteland. In fact, I mean, right. it's just a place 
with incredibly lovely yeah. thick loamy like black soil. I mean, it's which is beautiful. It looks like Sonoma. I mean, it really does. It's a fertile floodplain that stretches flat all the way out to foothills. A lot of F's in that sentence. Um, you know, along the Songha River and. Uh, I, I honestly, I've been all over China and I've never lived or seen uh, or spent a lot of time in a place so so beautiful. And you're right, the soil there, it's like if listeners can picture spent coffee grounds. You know, right. it's that, that it's that hey to they call it, right? Yeah. Really, really fertile soil. That they grow this very high-grade organic rice. So to go back to your original point, Kaiser. Rice. People in the Northeast um, can differentiate, you know, rice and judge rice the way wine drinkers can, different varietals. And... To me, rice is rice. And that's actually not that true because Dombe rice is damn good. It's so good. It I mean, smells good. Let me just I'm going to say we only buy rice from Dombe. In fact, we buy it from even further north with a, <laughs> that, that longer, ridiculously long, short growing season, long day yeah. short growing season. That's why you like the dope they grow in Alaska. So, you know, no, um, <laughs> that's um, my it's, next book. Right. right. Uh, no, seriously. Wasted though, land. Um, <laughs> But you're right. It's they plant at the end of April. They harvest at the beginning of September. They only do one crop. There's one crop, no cover right. crop. No triple crop. There's no barley, anything like that. It's um, it, and they make a living off of this because the price is so high for this. And a lot of them in this region uh, do it organically. And for listeners, they grow. This is um, what's called japonica. Chinese don't like using that term. Indica is long grain. Japonica is short grain. Hmm. In, in Chinese, you say xian or you say gong. They have their own words for these types. But it's that short grain sticky rice that you often see in sushi. That's but right. in China, you eat it from a bowl because it's a del- it's almost a delicacy. Yeah, and so I mean, it, it has this little oily sheen on it. Yeah, it right, really right, right, gr- right. gives off this luster, delicious, yeah, fr- right. this luster. Oh, it's... Mm. It's it's really I mean seriously it's a meal unto itself it's a it's a great, it's a great but you rest. know when you live in a farm like that you get so sick of it it becomes a, <laughs> another product you know and okay then, yeah I know so for me um, yeah I'm sort of riced out the way after living in Beijing I'm sort of jenbinged out you know uh, yeah 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 that's yeah. uh, happened to me yeah we were just talking about jenbing mm, right right breakfast of champions breakfast of champions no yeah. better way to gain twenty the, pounds in six months right than to have right a daily the jenbing. best breakfast in the world. I mean, so you, you titled your book In Manchuria, and, and I, I have no problem with that. But what I thought was interesting, and it was part of that, it was all about the quest for the Manchus. I mean, that, mm-hmm. in some of the early chapters, you talk about you, you're off in search of Manchu. I mean, I yeah. married a Manchu woman, and, and to me, most conversations about Manchu identity begin with, what banner are you? Oh, you're Manchu? I'm Manchu. What banner are you? I'm bordered yellow. Oh, I'm solid blue. I love That's it. a good one. That's that's and that's one. about it. That's, and then that's else, it. That's it. And the women smoke, and the babies <laughs> hang from a blank, you know, a cradle, and right. Right. they made I mean, saddles. They yeah. don't. They don't. They don't pursue any of the old, you know, um, mounting camels. Uh, from from the back by leaping on them, or, or the, the juggling with from, poles, or the feeling ice. I got from your book is is that you had spent this time in Beijing, and and th- there was this always in the back of your mind going back to see firsthand, you know, to to uh, go back and find the the Manchu ness yeah. that was at the heart of Beijing and everything, and it's <laughs> as I flipped through chapter through chapter, it seemed like the recurring motif was foreigner comes here and look uh, in search. Of of this you know essential quality of the Manchus and and the people there don't give a shit no, and don't even know what you're off. talking about yeah. and they just say like, oh yeah 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 Willow Pass you're you're here it's here it's right here I think right no, you just passed it sixteen hundred and and the, yeah. the great quote this woman who said uh, oh if you're looking for history you're too late yeah <laughs> which yeah. is well, the greatest quote in the book that yeah. is that is it's yeah. a, a, well you know the Northeast is is one of these regions that. So many people have passed through it over the past 400 years, and they've tried to bend it to their own narrative, and they've all failed. And so when I was doing the village and the changes that are going on in the village, which we'll talk about, um, about this transition to agribusiness, you know, managed farming, I realized, well, this is just the latest in what's been several policies, several occupations, several regimes um, in this region that in the past have all failed. So maybe this one will take hold, maybe it won't. Mm. Uh, but you're right, you know, living in, I lived in Dashalar, you know, just south of Tiananmen Square here when I was researching the last days of old Beijing. And so many things that we think of as Beijing or Lao Beijing are in Manchu in origin, right? right? From the chipao dresses to the bamboo whistles on pigeon feet to even the Dashalar's existence um, itself. Uh, and so when I went to the Northeast, I thought, oh, I'm going to find some of these old traditions, these roots. But they've all but vanished, essentially. And there's two interpretations of this, actually, in the Northeast. One is that by the time the Qing dynasty was at its height, even in the in the 18th century, going to the 19th century, more Manchu lived in Beijing or south of the Great Wall, at least, than they did in the Northeast anyway. Sure. Right. 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 So they had already cinified. The other interpretation is that, you know, because it's an ethnic culture, um, these these artifacts and this culture and this heritage just isn't taught in schools. 
um, it's, it's no longer of interest for the national narrative. So things like the Willow Palisade, Leo Tapian, the kids in my, in, in this, uh, we live, our village is within the border, the northern peak of what was the Willow Palisade, which was this thousand mile long kind of wishbone fence that, that um, the Manchu had hoped to protect their imperial hunting ground with in the region. It's an enormous region. I mean, it's the size of the state of Maine, right? Very I mean, good, exactly. Enormous, I mean, and the kids in the elementary school had never even heard of it. And my roommate, who was Manchu, had never even heard of it. Right. You know, my wife, who went to school in this village, had never heard of it. But she said, we were obviously taught the Great Wall and that the Great Wall failed in the end because the Manchu went through it. She said, they didn't tell us that part. Though. Well, the Great Wall didn't <laughs> fail. I mean, Usagwe failed. But... Right, exactly. And so I, I did find that the more I, I tried to look deeper and deeper into Manchu history, um, it wasn't there anymore, or it was just hanging on by a thread, you know, and you see these remnants, like there's that village where um, the last native speakers of Manchu live, these women in their late 80s in Sanjadza, which is north of Chichihar. But there's a guy, you know, 39-year-old teacher who's teaching Manchu to the kids because mm-hmm. his grandmother taught him. Mm-hmm. But he's come under nothing but political pressure for doing so because if you teach a foreign language in a Chinese elementary school, it has to be English, mm-hmm. not Manchu, right? Mm-hmm. So he's doing mm-hmm. it after school now. So, and yeah. Manchu is not going to be on the Gaokao. And, it's uh, not, not a whole lot of use for Manchu. And, and, but you do you do tell about the, the sort of the last three surviving native yeah. Manchu speakers, three 80-year-old women, right? Yeah. yeah. Who right. I needed political permission to speak to. You know, that's yeah. the, the sort of level. Of, that's yeah. it. We're down to three living native speakers of Manchu. Right. In that village. So by the end of oh, the in that, century. In that village. It, well, in they that say village. this is the last village. I didn't go searching village to village. But linguists say this is it's it, Sanjadza. And yeah. There's 6,800 languages on the planet. Half are supposed to go extinct by the end of this century, but none were once as prominent as Manchu. Yeah. And the thing for linguists and historians that this is an, an issue is that um, there are, I think it's 10 to 20 percent of the documents in the archives here in Beijing, the Qing Dynasty archives, are only written in Manchu. Uh-huh. So people aren't around. To, well, there are scholars who. Well, there are plenty of scholars who still read it. Right. Kaiser, can I just mention one thing just for the audience, listeners? Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, the, these traces of it. One thing that I think is so fascinating throughout your entire book is is that the traces of not just the Manchus, mm. but all the different, the Japanese, yeah. the Russians, the, the word that you actually comes up at one point in your book, but palimpsest, which mm-hmm. if uh, people don't mm-hmm. know that word. I got that, it from Gorbadal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a great, it's, uh, a palimpsest is, is actually originally the sheet of vellum and you actually scrape right. off what was written before. And right on top of it. And then right it. on top But you of can it. still right. see the traces and you sometimes even decipher exactly what was written earlier. So whether it be uh, Changchun, whether it be the... the the, the, the Puyi's palace, whether it be the Russians. You, you have several passages where you, you talk about walking through uh, the streets and seeing these buildings that, that this, is, this was a, built by the Russians. And, and, yeah. then, and yet, at the same time, on the street, you know, there are people shouting, you know, down with the Japanese, bring the Sakaku Islands belong to uh, the Daoyu Islands belong yeah. to China. So, so there's they wouldn't this, say the Sinkaku Islands. Right, they would say Daoyu. <laughs> but I mean, the point I'm saying is that this was a kind of uh, haunted, you know, all, all your 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 research had that quality to it that all those layers are still there. Oh, but they're you look there, but them, vanishing. They're and vanishing. And, and, and they're vanishing, and the local people have forgotten it uh, for the most part. You yeah. stay at a rest. You stay at a hotel uh, where you're the only one there. It's the old 1930s hotel. Yeah, I mean, that, the Japanese built hotel that and no, Chinese and, tourists don't care and, about. And no one goes to it. One. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I, I mean, I just wanted to point that out. I don't know if you want to comment on it, but it's it it, but it definitely is a reoccurring theme in your book, and it has it gives it a sense of that what you're doing is very valuable, but it's also very sad because you really write on the last few uh, epochs where you can still grab a hold of this tradition. This is why the book was a lot of fun to write. And I I should interject here that um, I think a lot of Western readers especially, and some Chinese readers too, when they hear the word Dongbei or the Northeast or Manchuria, they think Rust Belt. And they don't think of, you know, what we've covered already here, the beautiful countryside, um, the relatively prosperous countryside, um, and these amazing historical centers that are still great to visit, Mm -hmm. not just as a writer, but as a tourist, because you can see things there that you can't see anywhere else in China, if not Asia. Right. Um, Getting back to what you were talking about, David, you know, there is this kind of... um, theme in a lot of, of, of English language writing on China of the foreigner who does who comes here in search of authenticity. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm sure that there are people who um, at sort of on a superficial reading of yours are, is going, are going to kind of say, ah, oh, this is just another instance of that. Sure. Um, you surely had this. In, I mean, you, you've encountered a lot of that literature, and I'm sure you're kind of contemptuous of it. But what was, how did you? <laughs> kind of contemptuous of it. That's a good way of putting it, Kaiser. Um, to the point where I, you know, the cover of this book is black and white, and the, the title inventory is in red, and I fought very hard to not have a red cover. You know, uh-huh. I'm tired of the red spine <laughs> China book on the shelf, right? And um, I, 
I'm trying, I, I look at my work as, as trying to add to a conversation that's been going on for about 150 years about foreigners writing about China. Um, I'm trying to add things, you know, I think the, the time you write a book is when the book you want to read doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to read a book about the changes in Beijing and how that was affecting the rest of urban China. I couldn't find that book, so I went out and researched and wrote one. Now I'm interested in the changes going on in rural China. Again, I was looking for that book. I couldn't find it, so I wrote one. But you're right, Kaiser. You know, I'm off a three-week um, book tour in the States, and you immediately when you say when there's a book about China, you're sort of put into a camp um, immediately. There's a, a reviewer reaction, an interviewer reaction, which is, well, this is either going to be a quest for the destroyed, or it's going to be a polemic against you know the regime, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was at an event with um, Ian Fraser at the New York Public Library. Ian, Ian Fraser, who wrote Great Plains sure. and On the Res and Dating Your Mom and so forth, and he was he said something incredibly helpful to me, and I think it's incredibly helpful for anybody who's writing about China or working in China right now. He said, you know, Michael, your problem is you're ruining the fantasy. He said, you're going to have a hard time with audiences, with reviewers, um, because you're not telling them the same story they know already. You're not writing about polluted skies. You're not writing about one-child policy. You're not writing about corruption. You're writing about people um, with very interesting lives that are seen you know, offstage from what we usually hear about China and relatively happy lives and also this incredible history that have a lot of foreigners playing on the stage as well, Americans, Russian, Koreans, Japanese, um, Han Chinese at this time when they were foreigners coming across the stage. And he said, just remember that when you're giving these talks is just try to convince yourself, like, I need to sell them on this new version of China, which to us is, we know it, it's endemic, like we live it here, right? But for a foreign audience, that's harder. That's, that's a terrific review. Oh my yeah, God, you must have been nice. incredibly pleased that, that Ian Fraser said something so kind. He's a wonderful person. Yeah. He's so, <laughs> but you know, the other thing about it is, I mean, there's there's an, uh, there's romance that threads mm-hmm. through this whole thing. I mean, in, in in a figurative sense, but also in a very literal sense, because the story is all, all, all very much about uh, the story of your marriage. Yeah. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about Frances and about how she inspired. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm laughing because it's fun to talk about your wife um, when, when she's on the show. We, do it, all, we do it all the time, right? Yeah, we do it all the time. Um, we're all tongjir here. Yeah, so that's the other thing I noticed, like, in the conversation, you know, again, when you're writing a book about China, you're adding to a conversation. Your book is just on the next right-hand entry on the shelf. And I thought, recently, in the last 20 years of books, let's say, I haven't seen a sort of intimate portrait of, maybe not of a marriage, which I touch on a little bit in this book, how we met in our courtship, Um but what it means to be in a place where you're intimately connected to it. Because in Beijing, I was an outsider, and I could just swipe a credit card at the airport and leave at any time. Whereas in Wasteland, in Huangdi, this village, you know, I have roots there. That's family. It's Francis, where she grew up as a little girl. Her relatives are still there. It's still their plot of land. Um, and so I had a deeper connection to it. I don't want to say I had, a different, I had a different responsibility to it, but mm-hmm. I did want to show readers that it's also possible as a writer to um, – you know, care very deeply and have an intimate connection with the place that you're writing about. It was your hometown in law. My hometown in law, exactly. And I have to say, it's a lot harder writing about family than it is about strangers. Well, you yeah. actually I had an answer that. to the, the ubiquitous question in Sei uh, Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, in, uh, in Dombay, they, instead of supposed to saying, Chafalame or, or Chafalamania, when they greet you often in the, in the middle of nowhere, they say, Sei Jadia. They'll ask, you know, whose family are you? And it was nice to have an answer to that, you know, to be able to be placed in that. One thing that um, I thought was funny is Francis and I, we were living in New York City when I decided I wanted to write uh, to, to write this, that so this was going to be my next topic. And her father passed away, and that sort of triggered her of this, um, I want to go back home feeling, mm-hmm. right? I want to stop being here and doing this, and I want to spend some time with my family. So we gave up our apartment in New York. We left on New Year's Day. We flew to Beijing. We took this the train is, to Jilin. What year is this? This is 2010. Okay. And got up there, and Frances lasted a week. She lasted a week before she said, I don't want to live here. I don't want to come back. And it was funny because, you know, she's a Berkeley-educated lawyer, and um, she really felt, like, within a week of, like, oh, my gosh, I've reverted to being a Chinese girl. You know, I am an 8-year-old girl again in the village eyes, which for the first few days was really touching because she liked – everybody remembered her and wanted to be around her. But after a few days, she realized, I can't do this anymore. I want to go back to my career. So all during this, I was kind of marooned there where she went to Hong Kong and started working again. And I stayed in the village. And it was funny, though. A lot of the villagers had a lot of sympathy or empathy with me because someone even in the book says, you know, oh, he's just like a lot of us. You know, his spouse went off to the big city to work and he's left <laughs> behind here in the village. Oh, wow, my yeah. God. Yeah. 
and that's that's another thing. I mean, sort of, uh, David, you and I were, were talking about this house. You kind of cross paths. You are yeah. going in kind of opposite directions. I'm coming to the way. east, and she's going to the west. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to get the hell out, and we're we're fascinated with this place. Which again, it sort of fits the 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 narrative and the the story of Manchuria of people coming and going, yes, like yeah. a wave sort of ebbing and flowing in yeah. and out, different waves of population coming in and leaving. I'd also like to mention you have at least, a, is it a chapter or two, where mm. you give us a nice glimpse of what it was like for Frances to be a foreigner in America when she first went there, which I have seldom seen books that, that try to, you know, uh, psycho, uh, give a psychological account of what that's like from the other side. I'm glad and, you pointed that out. I thank you for that. Um, I, you know, one thing that's different with this book than with the Beijing book is I'm now aware that I'm going to have Chinese readers as well, yes. because the Beijing book, it took <clears throat> five years for it to be cleared, but it was finally published, translated in Chinese and published on the mainland. And when I was writing this book, I realized, oh, this is going to have Chinese readers as well. And so it's important in the very beginning to set up that I, I am a foreigner coming into this place and people are treating me this way and you can have that reaction to it. But there's another side of the story, which is Frances made this journey already. She came to my hometown and she had to experience being a foreigner um, in a strange place. And let's look how her impressions were and how people treated her. Because again, the, the story of this region is, is this constant newcomer coming, you know, interacting with the locals and then those roles reversing as people yeah. come and go over time. Yeah. No, it was, it was fascinating. Did she Thank agree you. with all of it or did she argue with you? So I'm very that way. I'm very lucky in that Francis um, said, I don't want to see any of it until it's done. And mm. she said, I'm not going to, I don't want to be giving you notes or I don't want to, I just want you to get it right. You know, the point of nonfiction is to be honest to the people you're writing about. Um, so she fact checked it. But although she wasn't, you know, elated with some of it, she said, well, it's true. It's right. And mm -hmm. ditto her, her mom too, which was nice. Yeah. We have it even better. When I write or talk about my wife, she says, I don't want to see it at all. Well, I think that's a secret to a happy marriage. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't so want to see Francis's caseload either at the end of the night. You know, we have other other interests. Yeah, yeah, I've I've attempted to write about. I mean, she's my my wife's get, actually gotten involved in some of the th little things that I've done when I've written about her family, uh, and and she's actually quite touched um, when when I show that interest. Again, just one more point on this, like reading yeah. the fantasy thing. Um, it's It's been hard for, I think, American audiences to grasp the fact that a, a woman from a village mm -hmm. could leave on her own, enroll in university in Beijing, become fluent in English, get to California on her own, enroll at Berkeley, go to law school at Berkeley, find a job, right? That that Francis has never weeded a patty in her life, right. you know, that she's of this generation of parents saying, stay away from the farm, go, you know. And Jilin has the highest literacy rate of, of any province outside of big city uh, in China. And it's not uncommon in little villages all over China right now for people to leave and go abroad and then come back to Asia yeah. to work, you know, as you know. So that's news to a lot of Westerners still. How far are we? You're only uh, 20 miles or so from Jilin Shi, right? Yeah. Okay, so, so we were about an hour because the transportation was lousy. It's better now, but I was, yeah, exactly. So if you picture, if listeners can picture Changchun, which is the heart, you know, the capital really of Jilin, right in the center of Jilin province. And then Jilin City is 70 miles to the east of that. And Huangdi, this village, Wasteland, is kind of in between Changchun and Jilin, but closer to Jilin. Okay. But because these urbanization rate targets that have been set, Jilin, sure, the city has now enveloped wasteland. Right, they've, right, right. they've just redrawn the municipal boundaries. So even though we're out in the middle of nowhere, um, it's officially part of Jilin City, which is great for the kids because it means Jilin City teachers are appointed to go out to that village to teach. So the quality of education is really good great. or better. Um, uh, talk about agribusiness. I mean, mm. I think that, you know, what, what features very prominently, at least in the chapters of the book that I've gotten to, mm -hmm. is is the expansion of, of this very large and, and seemingly not terribly sinister mm -hmm. uh, agricultural business uh, specializes in, in, in growing rice. It's called Eastern Fortune. Mm -hmm. right? uh, tell us about this and, and, and what role it played in the whole narrative. Yeah, I was um, sort of lucky. You know, I was lucky in the Beijing book that I moved into the courtyard that I moved into because that was next to the school that I ended up teaching in and the, the neighbors that were such great characters. And in this case, I was lucky in that I went back to Wasteland um, because it was Francis's home village. But within the first summer, you know, they the we had one road, Hongqilu, Red Flag Road, which became widened, and streetlights came in, and um, I started seeing threshers out in the field, and I quickly realized that oh my god, I'm writing the same book just set in the countryside. You know, this is going to be a book about about development and change, yeah, transformation, and. What was what happening else do you in Wasteland? About in China? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I know, right? I hear China's changing. I don't know yeah. if you guys have heard this. Um, it's a rumor. Um, 
But what happened in, in Wasteland is sort of on the vanguard for this trend that's coming nationwide now, and it's the national government is promoting it, and it keeps coming up in the number one policy document they announce every year, which is to consolidate family-held farms into larger corporate-managed farms, you know, farming at scale, um, very much what the states did. You know, in the, the 20s and 30s, there were 7 million farms in America. Now there's less than 2 million. It's like 9% of American farms grow 70% of its food. Mm-hmm. China is facing um, land shortage, you know, because of urbanization. China is facing um, soil pollution problems. China is also facing a labor shortage because, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of single children uh, just don't work in farms. Their parents want them um, in school. And so the solution here is to scale up. And Eastern Fortune Rice, you're right, Kaiser, it's not evil. It's not an antagonist in the story. Um, no, I was it's a change surprised. agent, you know? <laughs> I was actually surprised. I mean, I sort of expected it to be... Me too. Uh, okay. <laughs> and as a writer, I kind of hoped it would be. You know, <laughs> right, there'd be right, some right, nefarious right. boss. Like, we're going to get these farmers off their land. They're kind of charming, right? I mean, yeah, they are. And they're local. You know, there are, there are foreign agribusinesses doing this. Like, Cargill has an enormous poultry operation in Anhui. And, and naturally, they are evil right now. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, <laughs> but they – so what what's happening in Wasteland is um, – so Chinese farmers have 30-year leaseholds on their land, and most farmers have a plot that's about one and a half acres. So it's about the size of an American football yeah. field, if you can picture that. Um, and what these companies are doing, and Eastern Fortune is doing this in Wasteland, is they're going around and saying, look, you don't want to work the land anymore. We'll hire laborers to work your land. We'll, we'll use mechanized planting, mechanized threshing. We will give you – we'll lease your land. We'll sublease your, your plot for three years, and we'll give you a guaranteed rate. So right now, let's say uh, an average Chinese farmer makes about $1,600 a year. Wasteland, they're a bit more prosperous. They make about $2,300 a year. Easter Fortune Rice says, we'll guarantee you $2,500 a year right. for your crop. And you don't have to do anything. Right. And if you want to give up your house, we'll tear down your house, your single-story home. We'll plant rice there. We'll give you one of these new apartments we've built on the outskirts of town. So essentially what they're doing is they're allowing an entire generation of farmers to leave their profession um, and become urbanites. And I have to say, you know, a lot of farmers in Wasteland welcome this opportunity, especially people um, who are in their 30s and 40s who had inherited these plots from their elderly parents and didn't want to do it anymore. They wanted to have a motorcycle repair shop or a restaurant or, or work in Jilin City. Um, so that's what's afoot right now. And you're seeing this spread. You know, it's um, Hu Jintao visited the village in 2007. He did not pose, you know, with his Wellingtons on and his Zhongshan <laughs> suit out in the field. He instead he posed with the managers of Eastern Fortune Rice at mm-hmm. their company. Um, and this is this is being promoted nationwide. Well, as a in model the, in keeping with the overall uh, the, uh, the you new socialist the new social, uh, yes, and and the urbanization, which yeah. which the government is in, in, in fact increasing yeah. and in, and planning on you know making plans to make Beijing. Tianjin and Hebei, a huge megalopolis. So, so it, it fits in with the, the, the inertia yeah. that's already there, the, the move to the cities, and also the government's uh, long-term plans. Very I well. think it's and it's easy in Manchuria and Dongbei because people don't there aren't ancestral tablets showing that this land was farmed by our generation seventeen, ah, you know, right, right. years right. back. It's most people like in Wasteland came there in the nineteen fifties, actually, um, and maybe before that, nineteen twenties and thirties, if they were there from Manchukuo after that, but. Uh, people are a little more willing to say, like, yeah, you know, we don't have these deep attachments to this land. Um, and because it's flat, um, it's easier to do mechanized farming there anyway, and, and people move out. Tell us how Francis's family ended up in, 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 in Jilin. Uh, so, like a lot of people in the Northeast, they immigrated from Hebei and Shandong. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shandong contingent was like a lot of people to the Northeast because of a famine um, in the early 1920s. The Hebei people, Chuan Guangdong generation, right? Yeah, and the the, the people from Hebei um, were after that actually um, looking for work, and so they moved there right as Manchukuo was being founded, actually in 1931, 1932. Mm-hmm. So they're quite recent to the region, and a lot of people in this village. Like I said, I did date the Huangdi. This village goes back to Kangxi's reign, like 1722. It was actually founded, but. Um, it's 1,500 people in this village, and just a rough estimate, I'd say 1,000 of them. At, well, I bet even more than that, because it's 500 men, 500 women, and 500 kids. That's the official demographic breakdown, which I love. Um, <laughs> I'd say the vast majority of them are, are actually 19, after the 1950s. Okay. It was a military air base in the region, and so people originally um, settled there to grow food for the Air Force base there. So that's where Francis' father was a, a he was barefoot a soldier. doctor, right? No, no, yeah, he was no, a soldier. No. That's right. He was a medic. He was a barefoot doctor. That's right. Um, and so he was actually posted to this area. 
mm-hmm. much to his chagrin because he was from Sichuan. Right. And so for he him to be set up, put in the great northeast wasteland, as they called it, the northern wasteland, you know, to him was hell on earth. He still, he still would say until his dying day, like, I never got used to the cold. I never got used to it. Yeah. So did you? I grew up in Minnesota, and you'd think I'd be used to the cold, too. It would be about minus 18 Fahrenheit in the winter. Um, the cold wasn't bad. It was that damn wind, that northern right. wind coming the off wind the Gobi. Horrible. That was awful. And it's fun to look back. In the book, I talk about this. Travelers to the region, even you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, all complain about that wind as well. Right, Chinese right, travelers, right. Japanese travelers, Russian travelers, American travelers. I get the impression you just live, eat, sleep, and worship the Kong there. <laughs> Boy, the Kong's an amazing thing. It's like... <laughs> we promised we were going to talk about Kong sex. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the podcast gets hot. Hot sex. Yeah. Uh, What's a Kong, just for, a for Kong those is... few listeners who might not know? A Kong is a, a brick bed that's indigenous to this region, and um, it takes up most of your single-story you know, a farmhouse. So when you walk in the door, you sort of step up on stage almost immediately. And it's, there's a vent on the outside of the house that you stuff with dried rice chaff. Uh, if you picture a lot of these houses in wintertime, next to them, there's a stack of you know, rice chaff that's higher than the roof line. And then you sit atop this wonderfully heated uh, structure, and on your sh- oftentimes I'd be in my shorts and a t-shirt, and you start to smell like baked bread after a while, you know, when you're lounging <laughs> atop this thing. Yeah, it's very hot. The uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, One day I woke up because they, the, you know, yeah, they're, they're poorly this... made. These bricks, like crack, you know, the mortar between them. One morning I woke up and and there was smoke everywhere in the room, and I was really sort of blurry. I like, what's going on? And my roommate, my housemate, was standing outside in the fresh air, saying, "May wenti, may wenti, don't breathe, may wenti, don't, <laughs> don't breathe." And he's trying to fix it. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god! Oh my god. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the period of Japanese occupation. And, and um, does this part of China sort of have more? Yeah, more... that was my question. Right, yeah. right, right. Because that comes up all through uh, the book. Yeah, all through. And, and well, two things. One is I didn't realize to what degree uh, Dongbei and places like Harbin, you know, we know they have a, a foreign presence, but I wasn't aware of how truly cosmopolitan these places were. Yeah. You talk about, is it Harbin that had like uh, 55 different countries and 43 or oh, 43 sure. yeah. different yeah. languages? Amazing, right? Crossroads they, of Asia. I, they even called it the Paris of the East, which is what I thought they called Shanghai, which right. is a little strange. But uh, anyway, that's one thing which is quite interesting. The other thing is... Uh, you think of of, of the, the Japanese invasion. You think of the, the rape of Nanjing, right? But I think you could make a case maybe that that, that, that Manchuria, Dongbei, is a place that that, that bears more traces scarred, and yeah. scars yeah. of that. I and one so. of the one of the examples that I, that I didn't know, I think most people don't know, is that the government says since 1945, 2,000 or more people have been killed by yeah. Japanese ordnance, ordnance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. of chemical weapons that are there in the soil. So, yeah, that's Kaiser's question. What's, oh, your question, it, really. What's, what's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the the legacy is palpable. That's what yes, really surprised it would, me. I would think with these days of, of re, you know, nationalism and, and, and sure. reminding and the, and the, uh, the, 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 the antimony between the Jainian government and Japan, this must be, Dongbei must feel this more than most other places, right? And it's, I think it's a, a sort of a recent reawakening because when I first started traveling in this region, 98 was the first time I went. Everything was sort of oriented towards North Korea and the Kangmei Yuanchao you know, War, the aid, Resist America Aid Korea War. That was the anniversary that was celebrated um, region-wide. When I was teaching in the school, for example, like in 2010, now on September 18th at 9.18 in the morning, 9.18 again, um, class stops for a moment of silence and traffic stops across the region and the air raid sirens blow and it's commemorating the date that Japan invaded or started their invasion of Manchuria in was the Mukden incident. The yeah. Mukden incident, right? A bomb exploded or the Japanese exploded a bomb um, on the train tracks there. Nin- and, 1931, right? 1931, right. And so... Um, that that's going on where you have this sort of we were the ones who were invaded first everybody we were six years before the rape of Nanking. we were 10 years before pearl harbor we were before uh, germany invaded poland we were the start of world war ii up here but the flip side of that is that japan has left so many um marks on the the urban footprint of of the cities like in harbin and shenyang and in in changchun there's a demographic imprint because so many Japanese orphans were left behind and raised by Chinese families. Um, it was surprising to me to go to this village, Fangzheng, which is downriver from Harbin, where there's actually a, a Sino-Japanese friendship garden, which is a cemetery that Zhou Enlai himself dedicated in the early 60s that has survived the Cultural Revolution, um, where Japanese settler families are buried and the, the women and father men who raised the Japanese orphans are buried. 
Um, that has since come under attack from nationalists. The, the monuments have been attacked with sledgehammers. They've been daubed with spray paint. Some of them have had to have been bulldozed um, as this new en- enmity has risen itself. But there are still groups of Japanese that come back every year to that town to sweep the graves. And there are still, when you go to that town, the street signs are in Chinese and Japanese, not English, not um, Korean. Um, there's still Japanese language being taught in that town because it was a hotbed. It was a center for these Japanese pioneer families that lived there and were abandoned there by the Japanese. And there's a local historian there who's been trying to get plaques posted on some of these areas, including uh, an abandoned dock on the Songha River where thousands of Japanese women waited for rescue ships from the Japanese that never came. And instead, the women put their children on the dock and the women jumped into the river to, to kill themselves. Um, and the Chinese families in that area adopted some of these kids. And there's a historian saying, you know, we should mark this too because it proves that Japanese civilians were also victims of this war. They were victims of Japanese imperialism, which is what Zhou Enlai said as well in the 60s. Um, but he's having a very hard time making that argument right now you know, in this, in this climate. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that this has to do with we could talk about this with the Russians being there too, the Koreans being there, that history is not so neat in this region. Mm-hmm, you know, this mm-hmm. is sort of like Konigsberg or some of these areas of, of you know, Poland and, and, and so forth in, in the World War II theater of, the, of Europe where you go, well, yeah, we could tell it that way, but it's much more complicated. And there's a lot of living legacy going on here too, to the point where you mentioned there are still villages where you know, little kids are playing and, and unearthing chemical weapons and being burned because of it. And there are Japanese cleanup crews um, not far from Wasteland who are working with excavators you know, and big bulldozers in full hazmat suits, still pulling this ordinance out to be disposed of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the war is still going on in some ways. In, within living memory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, uh, you can, um, obviously, you see, there's an awful lot to this book, and I highly recommend it. Um, I'm looking forward to finishing it. Uh, um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. I know that you, so you've been teaching at Pitt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a professor there. You're an assistant professor at Pitt, and you're, you're teaching English. I teach nonfiction writing. Yeah, nonfiction it writing. is possible to transition out of China with a China book to an academic <laughs> job. I was very happy to learn this. <laughs> there's, there's hope for some, but it doesn't feel like you're done with China either. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm a dad now, and I think a lot of listeners can relate to this, and Kaiser, you certainly can too, that um, I suddenly, my research interests become much closer to home, right? Mm -hmm. Like I want to be, I want to be within a hundred yard radius of my house and my son most times now. So um, we actually moved to Singapore last summer. So I'm going on a long leave from Pitt, and I'm interested in Singapore as a topic now, um, which surprised me. I thought when I first moved to Singapore, I thought like, oh, this is kind of like living in Orange County. Like what's there to write about? But as a lot of listeners know, you know, China is very interested in the Singapore idea and the Singapore model. Um, and it's a very fascinating place to live. And so I think the next book is going to be about Singapore. I mean, it's a very kind of opportune time to write about it right now with the man who in so many ways embodies Singapore now apparently more of a, on, on, on his deathbed. Uh, on his deathbed. And we're about to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the country's founding, you know, right. founding by force, essentially, as Singapore's call it. They didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't found their country by choice. They were forced out of Malaysia. So... Um, I think it is an interesting time to write about it, yeah. And the Chinese presence there and the Chinese language and bilingualism, it's all very interesting. Everything that's going on in Hong Kong, you know, Singapore, (laughs) Singapore, Hong Kong have a dynamic much like Beijing, Shanghai or or Taipei, Hong Kong as well, which, well, who is the true repository of Chinese culture right now, right? And based on the events in Hong Kong in the last couple of years, I've seen Singapore already the short time I've been there. It comes up all the time again. Well, Hong Kong's doing it this way, so we're going to do it this way. Mm-hmm. We're going to do mm-hmm. something different mm-hmm. to ensure that that we're guarding these these ideals and this sort of, you know, different curriculums and different forms of politics and onward. So, yeah, it is a good time to be writing about Singapore. I hope. We'll see. I have to ruin that fantasy of Singapore now. For <laughs> right, yeah, it's exactly. more than no gum and caning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and stewardesses. And <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so let's move on to the part of our show where we make recommendations. Um, and David, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I want to recommend something. It's not really a thing exactly, but the um, in, in in sort of prepping for the show, I was on YouTube looking for Manchuria, and I was reminded I have a whole set of of DVDs from the the United States uh, uh, National Archives. It's the National Archives uh, Research Administration, and they they've got a shitload of, of of films and things going back to the 1930s, mu- much of which were meant only for internal use by the CIA or, or the or, or the government or the, or the military, but other things uh, uh, that are, uh, for example, films of the of TV broadcasts in the 70s talking about China, 
Uh, there's actually Nixon's trip to China uh, for, I guess, for CIA uh, consumption that has great footage of uh, Nixon and Kissinger on Air Force One talking prior to their trip there with, with Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and even Rosemary Woods there. Well, Rosemary about China. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. But what's interesting about it, the reason I'm recommending it is it's, it's not just has great footage of China from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and the Cultural Revolution. It's also ethnographically interested. It's, U, it's U.S., uh, you know, uh, State Department and, and military and people talking about China. But it also says a lot about America. Hmm. So you're, you're seeing a lot about what America was that at that time during the McCarthy era, uh, the way they talked about the nationalists, and the way they talked about Nixon in China, for example. It's, it's absolutely fascinating stuff from both sides. You're, you're, you're looking at your own America, its evolution, and the way it's looked, looked at China. You, you see, for example, there's footage of the Great Leap Forward before we knew what the Great Leap Forward was really all about. And you're seeing these furnaces just, just unremarkably you know, mentioned uh, to make steel and so on and so forth. And, and it's, They're so industrious. It, yes, exactly. <laughs> Everybody's yeah. got a backyard furnace. Exactly. And some of these things are very professionally made. They're, they're narrated by you know, like Clifton Fetterman and these people. You know? oh, Clifton Fetterman. It's, and, wow. and, and, and it's a little hard to find on YouTube. You can't, it's hard to isolate the National Archives material. I ordered them from Amazon. But they're fascinating stuff. And there's, and there's a lot of, frank, very racist stuff. They talk about Manchuria and the Japanese, and they have a voiceover imitating sort of pidgin English, Japanese. You know, you know, we are the glorious Japanese people. And the, you know, it's like, oh, how <laughs> sickening! But this was, you know, part of the course. So with a little digging German. and a little isolating, <laughs> weird, huh? if you just do National Archives China, you're going to get a lot of, of hits. And oh it's, wow! It's, it's fascinating stuff, and it's all there. You're going to have to lend these to me. I'm going to no, yeah, no problem. Out. Wow, very cool. Meyer, what you got for us? You got a recommendation for us? I'm going to go off the National Archives thing, actually. <laughs> if you're interested in Japanese war crimes in China, there's an entire... And who isn't? Uh, I know, right? There's an entire sub-web page on the National Archives um, main page if you type in Japanese war crimes. If you type in Manchuria, you'll find an incredible archive, too, because a quick-thinking clerk um, at the end of World War II in 1945 saw big shipments of Manchukuo, South Manchuria Railway, ethnograph ethnographic reports, anthropological reports, records, and so forth, and decided I should not put these on the ship going back to Japan because they'll get burned by the Japanese. Uh, so instead he indeed. steered that entire shipment, these pallets, onto an American-bound ship, and they ended up in the National Archives. So the best... Um, repository I found for the research for this book on any of the Japanese occupation all the way into war crimes, um, which is an English document, is at the National Archives. They scrub website. it of Unit 731 stuff, though? Uh, no, in fact, a lot of that has now been added because of, you know, in the late 70s when it, we found out that the U.S. Army had given a, a pardon to Shiro Ishii, the guy who ran the Mengele of China, who ran the Unit 731. That's all been added to that Japanese war crimes archive, which is fantastic. So there was a bill passed um, under Nancy Pelosi saying that all uh, national intelligence agencies had to declassify their Japanese war crime material, right. which hadn't been done the way the German stuff had been done. And so it was Pelosi-sponsored um, bill that passed during Clinton's administration that has now set up this separate con commission to declassify all the related materials for Japanese uh, activities in Dongbei. If she had known that it would be in any way beneficial to China, I'm sure she never would have sponsored oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> Great. That's that's a terrific recommendation. Um, although I, I, I don't know that many of our readers are going to make their way to the archive and start pouring through. It's all, all online. It's all oh, online. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. Uh, mine... I this was sort of inspired by a couple of things. I, I uh, had read a Guardian uh, screed by the philosopher John Gray, who is sort of this uh, massive critic of of the European Enlightenment and the way that it's it's been sort of interpreted canonically. And this this took the form of of, of a critique of Stephen Pinker's book, which claims that 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 violence has decreased. Um, significantly, even even in the 20th century, in the very very bloody 20th, 20th century, uh, thinks that overall human deaths by uh, through war have, have decreased. There's a lot of different angles of, of critique on this book, but I didn't think this was a, a particularly satisfying one, um, and uh, it just made me realize how much I hear the word enlightenment now, and how it's it's now we're 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 in this this interesting phase right now where more and more people I think are cognizant. Of, of just how rooted in that period of you know the mid 18th century and focused mainly in uh, in Paris how 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 much of of what we take for I mean everything in Charlie Hebdo mm -hmm. uh, the whole discourse on on um, uh, 
the spread of democracy, everything, um, the Arab Spring, everything has been cutched in terms of, of the Enlightenment. And so I decided to sort of give myself a, a little bit of a refresher. I had a whole bunch of soon-to-expire credits on audible.com, and I was looking for a good audiobook to download, and I found one that had been, you know, come to me through a recommendation. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's called... Uh, a wicked party? No, no, a wicked. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I've got to look this up right now. I'm, I'm awfully uh, spacing the name of the book, and I'm, I'm almost through it already. Um, I'll this, add this that you can get happens. in Manchuria on Audible.com as well. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Um, the, the author's name is Philip Blom, B L O M. He's a German American uh, historian. It's called A Wicked Company, and it looks at at uh, uh, characters who are familiar to some of us, like uh, uh, Denis Diderot. Uh, who, of course, most people know is the compiler of the, the encyclopedia, right? Uh, but was a, uh, a a strident atheist and a uh, a, 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 a major freethinker, um, major critic of of both the monarchy and and of course the clergy, uh, and his relationship with Voltaire. But the other main character in there is the Baron Thierry Dolbach. Um, who was one of the who ran the most eminent salon of the mid 18th century? Who you know had all sorts of people. I mean, uh, Hume was there, and and Benjamin Franklin was there, and all sorts of other Enlightenment um, notables, including Jean Jacques Rousseau, who comes off as a complete dick in this. Um, I mean, just petulant and petty, and just paranoid, and 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 clearly mentally ill. Um, oh really? Yeah, cl- very clearly huh. mentally ill. Um, read this. It's 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 quite it's quite fun. Anyway, hey man, uh, y- I know you got to get off to your uh, to to your your um, your thing. You're My doing thing. A, you're, you're doing <laughs> it's a, it's a workshop on writing. I am talking about China writing today and how to turn your China stories um, into something that a Western audience might want to actually read. Right. What yeah, would you know about easy. that? What would yeah. I know about <laughs> that? You know exactly. That? You're totally unqualified. Yeah. So, again, everybody, listeners, in Manchuria, a village called Wasteland and the transformation of <laughs> That's rural how you China. Do it. That's how you do it. Yeah, you yeah. plug yourself plug. constantly. But and also, um, the website, inmanchuria.com, has all my tour dates. I'm still giving talks across the United States and we'll, we'll be doing Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai. Um, later this year, so cool. I'd love for listeners to come out and 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 read his last book too. It's great. Thank you. And um, thanks you know, for having me. Both go of you. to the Wayback Machine and look for all these tremendously wonderful little articles that that uh, uh, Mike wrote for uh, ChinaNow.com back in 1999. Kaiser was my first editor yeah. I've ever had in China. Yeah. What an auspicious beginning! Look how far we've grown. <laughs> yeah, you and Hessler, right? <laughs> We're back <laughs> in the same room again. <laughs> All right, hey, uh, so folks, we'll see you next week. And sorry once again, Jeremy. Jeremy, I I promise next time we will have this whole Skype thing worked out and uh, you will be joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. Take care. (laughs) 